Hey everybody, welcome back to Is That Too Dark? I'm Nikki. I'm Kaylin. And we're back at it again. Here we are. I'm trying not to say the days of the week anymore because who knows when people listen to this. Really gotta break it down for sure. I think we're just gonna jump right in, shall we? Let's do it. Okay. dark news today i want to talk about rashid bryant he was 22 months old when he was pronounced dead at miami jackson north medical center but he was pronounced dead on november 6th 2020 his parents were just um indicted but i guess they had been investigated by dcf 24 times for child abuse before he was found dead in his bed so wait, I'm sorry, I'm very confused. Maybe so he died in November of 2020. Of 2020. Okay. But the court case is still going on. So this is the update from the court case. Oh, oh, I thought you said they like just took him to the hospital like two years later. What no. were they doing with him? He was pronounced dead at Miami Jackson North Medical Center on November 6th, 2020. Um, allegedly he had stopped breathing, but his mom waited 83 minutes to call 911 after she found him. Was she trying, do you know if she was trying CPR or no. she was just staring at him? Just not doing, you know, maybe she was in shock. I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. 83 minutes of shock? 83 minutes. Okay. So he, they arrived at the scene, the authorities did. He had allegedly been foaming at the mouth. There was like foam on his face um, when they found him. They listed the death as a homicide caused by complications of acute and chronic blunt force injuries associated with parental neglect so breaking that down basically um blunt force injuries parental abuse is they're saying 100 percent. they have no doubt it was his parents so christopher bryant and jabora daris have been charged with manslaughter and aggravated child abuse um they had been like i said before the subject of two dozen reports of abuse or neglect and the DCF had investigated the couple themselves 16 times um, for, and I guess they have eight kids. So it wasn't just Rashid that was having investigations. It was all of their children. Not that this matters. I'm just curious. Do you know if they were all biologically their children or was it like a mixed? They were biologically their children. They were yeah. busy. Yeah. So Rashid suffered multiple injuries. Um, he was only 22 months old, but he had already suffered a fractured femur, a broken rib, and multiple cracks to his skull. He had actually broken his leg six months before he was dead in May 2020. Um, Jabora, the mom, had told three different stories about how the toddler had been hurt, telling the hospital that he had fallen off of a bunk bed, which he was... At that point, 18 months old, what's he doing in a bunk bed? Oh, why is he on the top bunk of a bunk bed? In I get maybe general. the bottom bunk. If, you know, they have eight kids, I doubt they have an eight, nine, ten bedroom house. So they probably have bunk beds, right? Right. But why, yeah, why are we on the top bunk? And maybe, you know, with siblings, I could see it. But also, there are a lot of other injuries here. It's not like, oh, he just broke his leg and that's all. Yeah. So that was the first story she told. Later, she told the nurses that he'd been dropped from a playpen. And I guess they investigated this further. This is one of those investigations. Um, She had texted Rashid's aunt that she beat his ass. This is an 18-month-old. Why? What did an 18-month-old do? Yeah. 
Not that you should ever beat any children, but like, what can a baby do to make you that upset? Exactly. Um, Jabora never faced criminal charges for his broken leg, but the child was taken into protective custody for several months. Um, he was returned to Jabora and Christopher three months before he died. Did Why? Did they show any... I mean, what about their other kids? They were able to keep custody of the seven others. I don't know. Um, if until you this get, point. So. If you, one child is taken away for abuse. Why do you think only that one child? I mean, in some cases, yeah, one child is selected out, but... Thinking about the Gabriel Fernandez case, right? Oh. Like, they lost custody of Gabriel, but she kept custody of his siblings. And the targeted, so the abuse was targeted to him. So, hopefully this isn't I don't know. If you abuse one kid, cases. you shouldn't have any of your kids. Right. To be honest. I agree with you. The Miami-Dade Circuit judge, Barbara Aresis, um, basically went off on DCF for violating the state's public records law by refusing to publicly release the boys' file when the media asked for it. But I'm wondering why they're in trouble for that and not in trouble for, like you said, not removing the other seven children from the home. Um, but to end it, Christopher and Jabora have pled not guilty to all charges and are still waiting trial. Um, they're being held without bond. It's just so sad because the system is so broken and it's like we want to blame these um, people who work in, you know, our social workers and stuff. But it's also like, you know how many cases these people have? So, yeah, all these things are filed, 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 but they don't have enough time to pay that close of attention to these people as they should, right? Like if something is filed, realistically, if the world is perfect, they continue to follow up, but they just don't have the time for it. And that's what's so sad is that it just, all these kids fall through the cracks and we want to blame someone, but let's blame their fucking parents right. for having them and then doing this. Like if you can't take care of your children, don't have, don't have, the, don't have eight. Yeah. Don't have eight for sure. Don't have eight. You know, if you have that many issues and anger towards a baby for being a baby, don't have children. You've had seven other opportunities to learn that maybe having fucking kids isn't for you. And I know we want to blame everyone and we want to blame the system, but let's start with where I think the issue is and that's parenting yeah no, and then you gotta you. fix the system i'm with obviously. you yeah the system's broken but it's also because the system is overworked because mm -hmm. there's not enough resources going mm -hmm. because people keep having eight children and, and people know. that shouldn't be having eight children i'm not against people having eight children if you treat your children correctly right these people are obviously very clearly not treating their children correctly and then kids die yeah. kids who weren't asked to be born in these situations get killed by their parents for whatever fucking reason right so we're back to sad children deaths. Yeah, Great. sorry. I think we had like three weeks off. But Maybe. why does this keep happening? That I don't know. It's so sad. It's so sad. I know. And as someone who eventually wants to have kids and I'm going to have to jump through a lot of hoops to have them, it kills me when people have them. Maybe it was by accident. Maybe this was something they chose to do to mistreat them when there's so many other families mm -hmm. out there that would love them appropriately. Yep. You know, it hurts. It yeah. sucks. Yeah. Okay, well. So anyway. <laughs> so anyways, um, dark news. We keep it dark here. Let's jump into our case, shall we? Let's. So this is a different case for me. I've been wanting to do it for a while, but I have a long, long list of cases I want to do. And you know what happens is I never do any of those cases because I see one TikTok and I'm like, actually, I need to do this case. Yeah. This is a case I also saw on TikTok and it is the case of John Allen Chow. He was born on December 18th, 1991 to Patrick and Linda. John is the youngest of three kids. Um, his dad, Patrick, immigrated to the United States from China during China's Cultural Revolution, and he was a psychiatrist. His <laughs> mother, Linda, um, a few sources told me that she was an attorney, but 
Miss Wikipedia talked about how she was an organizer of Chi Alpha, which is an international Christian fellowship. Chi Alpha primarily recruits members on college campuses, bringing young people together through their love of Christ. Their values are community, creativity, diversity, excellence, integrity, and servant leadership. So this was actually on my college campus. And as a not really religious person, it's kind of like a fraternity. It's a co-ed fraternity for people that love God and probably think that other fraternities and sororities live in sin. Um, But, you know, it's a good thing, I suppose. So John was born in Alabama, but grew up in Vancouver, Washington. And growing up, he loved to spend time in the nature. He loved to hike, camp. So he loved to read survival stories and idolized men like John Moyer, who is a naturalist, and missionaries David Livingston and Bruce Olson. Both of these men are famous for converting the Bari people in South America to Christianity, and they wrote lots and lots about it. He was raised in the Assemblies of God, which is a Pentecostal church. Members of this church have been said to speak in tongues. So That was one of those that... um... Jim Jones studied under before he decided he could make it better. Love it. When he was not exploring the outdoors, he spent a lot of his time in various clubs and charity groups, which were usually centered around his Christian faith. So his two passions in life are the outdoors and Jesus. And this was his passion his whole entire life. So after he graduated high school, he attended Oral Roberts University in Oklahoma. Oral Roberts is a religious college that does not allow smoking, drinking, swearing, and any kind of sexual relations outside of heterosexual marriage. They make sure to say heterosexual marriage. Yeah, that's it. Only. That's it. Because you know the world. We only care about hetero... We only... Everyone's a heterosexual marriage. It's the only one that exists. Yeah. Yeah. Duh. Please sense our sarcasm Gays, what's that? (laughs) So according to his friends and family, John became even more religious during college, and no one was surprised at all when he expressed his interest in becoming a missionary. Throughout high school and college, he went on several missionary trips to South Africa, Mexico, Iraqi, Kurdistan, and the... And Daminan Islands. Um, there's a lot of words here that I'm going to say wrong. So sorry. That's what the American education system, public school. Did you? <laughs> so he um, actually, you know, he wasn't anti-social media. So he documented lots of his trips on Instagram and was a pretty decent photographer. He actually got um, a sponsorship for a beef jerky company, which when I first did this research, they were like, He's a spokesperson for a jerky company. I was like, for a what? And then as I read more, I was like, oh, this makes sense. Gross. So he had a small following. In 2014, he graduated college and took a mission trip to Kurdistan and Israel. At this point in our life, it seemed like he had really found his purpose, passion. He knew what he wanted to do. However, one thing that was non-existent for him was his love life. And according to John, he purposely chose not to engage in romantic relationships because he felt it would be irresponsible to the relationship while preparing for his biggest trip yet. So this trip that he was planning to go on and what makes us know who he is, he wanted to go to the North Centennial Islands and convert the people on the island to Christianity. So he first heard about the Sentinelese people during high school. He found them on a database called the Joshua Project. So according to an article in The Guardian, which is where I got a majority of my information, this article, I'm going to link it obviously, um, was the best article ever. So according to The Guardian, the Joshua Project entry for the Sentinelese describes them as extremely isolated and notes that the Indian government bans access to the island. The website suggests praying for the Indian government to allow Christians to earn the trust of the Sentinelese people and live among them. In addition to basic medical care, the Sentinelese need to know that the creator God exists and that he loves them and paid for the price of their sins. I'm sure they're fine. 
Like, I'm sure they're fine. Well, John doesn't think so because he describes the island as Satan's last stronghold and believes the people on this island need to know about Jesus Christ. So let's talk more about these people before we get into what happens. Um, they live on North Sentinel Island, which is a part of the Adnam and Microbar Islands. They are in the Bay of Bengal. So these islands are a union territory of India. They, um, the Sentinelese people are said to be the most isolated group in the world. And according to the Joshua Project website, there are between 100 and 200 people living on the island. They speak Sentinel. So everything we know about this is either from people who have been there or just from us observing from the outside. So really all of this could be wrong. Right. Realistically. And guess what? These people don't know we're talking about them because they don't have access to the internet that we know of, but we, do, we don't know. That's the thing is we don't know what goes on on this island. Um, so we fly over it, we take pictures of it, and the pictures you'll see are just from flyover pictures or pictures from boats because they do not like visitors. Um, they are not welcoming to outsiders. According to the Joshua Project, though North Sentinel Island is one of other two islands, they do not interact with the other tribes in the region. They are adverse to anyone trespassing on their land, so adverse, in fact, that they often shoot arrows at those who would try to land there. In 1867, a merchant ship, the Nevea, ran into the reef, so not on purpose. <laughs> the crew were able to fend off their attackers. A convict from the British Penal Colony of Great Adam Island escaped to the island in 1896, only to be killed by their arrows. Fast forward in 2006, they killed two Indian fishermen whose anchor failed, allowing them to drift too closely to the island, end quote. So these people weren't even trying to get on the island and they were killed. This is all documented. This is all things everyone knows. This right. is things that John knows going into this. Okay. But not every encounter has ended in death. Um, again, this is from the Joshua Project. There have been several instances of contact with the group that did not end fatally. National Geographic filmed a documentary on the island bringing armed guards to ensure their safety to the crew. They brought gifts, including a doll and a toy car. Government anthropologists such as Madhumala... Oh, God. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to say this. Madhubala, Chattopadai, mm -hmm. and Trilaknath Pandit. Great. I'm keeping that in because <laughs> Kaylin is the smart one here. So they visited every three or four years beginning in 1967. Um, they, Mrs. Chattopale was the first woman to ever visit the island and had physical contact with the group. They brought them candy, cloth, pigs, and coconuts. In 1991, his team of 20, including the armed guards, were excited to be um, able to even touch and be touched by the islanders. So a video exists of one of these encounters where the team offers coconuts and invites them onto their boat using words from a nearby tribal language. They claim to have lost several pairs of glasses um, because the islanders stripped them of their clothing. End quote. But after this visit, the Indian government has said to the world, we are done bothering these people. One, because they're usually not welcoming. So this group was kind of rare and the fact that they use that kind of slow approach but also they were constantly berated by these people they were stripped naked their stuff was stolen like they i think used them just for the stuff they were bringing i mean they don't understand what a documentary is right you know and like armed guards and stuff they don't care like they do not care if you bring weapons to their island they will use their arrows they are people of the land 
So they're not welcoming. So this can result in death. Like these people use a slow approach, but who knows? They could have turned like that. And two, outsiders going on the island pose danger to the people on the island because we carry diseases such as the flu and they're not immune to it. So one person contact, one if one person on the island gets the flu, they can wipe out all of them. Very much like a pandemic. It would right. be a pandemic effect. You know, they have been on this island for centuries and have not left the island. So besides the group not wanting company, we know that they hunt, gather, and fish. Their diet is primarily seafood, nuts, fruit, and other raw meat. They don't farm. Um, so they eat what they can find on the island. They do build homes, most of them being very large, no decoration. I don't know why it matters, but that was a good point to bring up. Um, the people often don't wear clothes and they're typically seen wearing only headbands. From what we know about their religion, they do believe in one God, but they also believe in spirits. And while we call them the Sentinelese, we don't know what they call themselves. And the people on the island seem to be healthy and thriving. So that is a background of these people that are going to be a pivotal part of the story. So John calls this island Satan's last stronghold, which is interesting because maybe he doesn't believe that they believe in God or maybe the idea of spirits makes it satanic. I don't really know. Um, but in order to prepare for his voyage on the island, he gets all of his vaccines responsible and because he doesn't want to get people sick. So he truly says he loves the people. And we'll talk about this later. He also trains as an emergency medical technician and works as a ranger at a recreation center in California. He stays in good shape. And in 2017, he attended a boot camp in Kansas City that was put on by All Nations, a Christian organization that wants Jesus to be worshipped by every tongue, tribe, and nation. One activity that John took part in during the boot camp was a mock village that was filled with hostile natives. And according to the All Nations leader, Mary Ho, he was one of the best trainees in the camp. I find that whole thing problematic. Like they just have, I'm sure white people pretending to be native people that are hostile, whatever they call hostile. So, and I love that we're preparing for this because again, their goal is to go to every single country, every single person and get them all to love Jesus. Fine. So he does this all um, preparing for life on the island. He seems to me to have really thought this out. This trip was years of planning. Like he had planned this. He was 26 when he finally went here and he'd been talking about it since high school. Okay. So probably around 10 years. Yeah. Um, so to me, he should have full awareness of the danger, but he, you know, our God is an awesome God. So with all this training and awareness, he goes out. He settles in Port Blair, which is the regional capital of the islands in October of 2018. And he did keep a diary, which allows us to see where his head is at during the time this diary has been released. And this would actually tell us about his final days on earth. This is where he prepared for his first meeting on the island, um, and he makes a care package for the Sentinelese. It includes picture cards to communicate since they don't speak the same language, kind of smart, gifts and medical equipment. Despite being fully vaccinated, he self-quarantines for 11 days to be sure he was not sick. Isn't that crazy? Smart. Smart it's man. It's crazy that he knew to do that. Though. I know. He would have truly thrived. In COVID, <laughs> In yeah. COVID. So during this time, he prayed, exercised, read, and by his own accord, did not go into the sunlight. On November 14th, 2018, he found two fishermen and paid them $25,000 in Indian currency, which is about 336 United States dollars. Sorry, they don't say dollars, but 25,000. I'm, I'm in using our American currency. In currency. Yeah. Um, you may be wondering why he had to pay the men so much money. Well, because per Indian law, he needs a permit to visit these islands and no one is allowed to go to the North Centennial Islands. So if you want to go to the Edman or Nicobar Islands, you need a permit, but you cannot get a permit to go to North Centennial because they have said, leave them alone. 
So the Indian government, you know, says, hey, pray for these people, but leave them alone. <laughs> like, we don't want anything. We're going to leave them alone. Yeah. The government's leaving them alone. They're not trying to invade. So, so how about you also leave them alone, yeah. buddies? We're not getting in there, so why do yeah. you need to? Yeah, so um, he did none of this because obviously he was going, and so he paid people to take him there. On the boat ride, he wrote in his diary how he saw fish jumping and swimming like mermaids. The fishermen anchored the boat about 500 meters away from the shore, and they were like, we're not getting any closer, and really, this is a stupid trip. You shouldn't do this. Like, they warned them multiple times. Yeah. And John was like, do not care. So the first contact with the island was on November 15th. He stripped to his underwear because he thought he would appear more welcoming. He got into a kayak and paddled to the shore. The people realized he was there very quickly, so they came ran- running out of their huts. Their faces were painted yellow, and they were screaming in a language that John could not understand. This is all from his diary, by the way. Um, John, from his kayak, yells out, My name is John. I love you, and Jesus loves you. The people on the island didn't give a fuck that his name was John or that Jesus loves him. Um, they raised their bows and arrows and were ready to attack. John, at this point, panics, throws his gifts he brought on the shore, and according to his diary, turned and paddled like I never have in his in my life. This first hostile meeting did not deter John, because remember, this is just Satan. This is just Satan. Doing later, the Lord's work. Takes later time. the same day, he doesn't even wait 24 hours. Later the same day, he's on his way back. Um, he gets out of the boat, gets down, gives them more gifts. And when the Sentinelese came out of their hats yelling, he tried to copy what they were saying and attempt to communicate. Oh, so they're saying, get the fuck away from me. And he's like, yeah, get the fuck away from me. Yeah. So, you know, if they're screaming and I'm not going to pretend to understand what they said, or I feel like that's mocking them. Like that's how I would take it. Yeah. So if they're going, ah, he's going, ah, Mm. um, so they start laughing and John later wrote in his diary that they were probably saying mean things about him. Mm. But I guess laughing is better than shooting arrows at him. So he starts singing worship songs and preaching from Genesis. Oh, good. Now, this is until a Sentinelese boy was very tired of hearing this and shot an arrow at him. The arrow hit John's Bible. So he pulled the arrow back, gave it to the boy, and went back to his kayak. Except the Sentinelese took his kayak. Oh. So he had to swim back to the main boat. Oops. 500 meters. Which is just my favorite because they're like... Fuck you. You came back, so we're going to take your shit. Yeah. And that is the same thing that the people in the 90s reported, that they would take everything from them, which, like, queen energy. If you're coming out of my property, I'll take your shit. Yeah. Thank you. Um. So that night in his diary, he wrote, per the Guardian, I'm scared. Watching the sunset, and it's beautiful. He was crying a bit and wondering if it'll be the last sunset I see before being in the place where the sun never sets. You guys think I'm crazy in all of this, but I think it's worth it to declare Jesus to these people. Is this Satan's last stronghold, he asked God, a place where none have heard or even had a chance to hear your name? So the next day on November 16th, John decided to try a new approach. Maybe if the fishermen left, the people would feel safer with John. The fishermen did what asked, what they were asked to do and dropped him off the island. Again, they gave him a warning like, buddy, this probably isn't the best idea. And he said, bye. So they yeeted on out of there. You know, they're smart. They understand what's up. This was the last time that John would ever be seen alive. According to the fishermen, they saw John being dragged from the shore into the island. One of the last things John wrote in his diary was, I think I could be more useful alive, but to you, God, I give all the glory of whatever happens. He asked God to forgive any of the people on the island who try to kill me, especially if they succeed. End quote. After the fishermen saw John disappear in the forest and on the island, they returned to the port 
and told John's friend what happened as well as gave him the diary. So John like left them the diary. Um, and I think all the stuff, he just went in there with nothing. I think he even might've went in like without clothes. Cause again, remember he wants to appear more approachable. And John was actually staying with his friend who was also a pastor. So they knew all this. So, and John's friend knew what was going on. So it wasn't like, oh, mystery, he vanished. Like everyone knew what was going on. So his friend immediately told John's family in the United States, who then contacted the American consult in Shanghai, hoping they could get some help. On November 19th, the Andam government was notified of what happened. And on the 21st, the police issued a statement reminding everybody that the, that the public was not allowed on the North Centennial Island and told them to please don't go on the island. The Indian authorities did try to get John's body back, but after several attempts, it was clear it was too dangerous to continue to contact the tribe on the island. And John did write in his one of his diary entries, like, do not try to get my body if I disappear. So he seemed to really like respect the culture in a weird way, but also to me, directly disrespect the culture by one, bothering them, and two, trying to change their culture by bringing Jesus into it. I agree with you. Yeah, for sure. To say like, I know what I'm doing. I know what the risks are. Respect that, but also not going to do it myself. So in total, seven people were charged. Um, Two of them being the fisherman who took John to the island because it is illegal to go onto the island. So anyone who knew about it or was helping John do that were charged. Mm -hmm. I don't know the end result of it. I don't think they really, I think they might've just been fined. Um, but a murder investigation was open, but from, again, what I could find, no one's been charged with John's murder. And I think it was just one of those things where they're like, yeah, we'll do it, but we're never going to go on the island and try to get these people. And also we've made it very clear that if you go onto the island, bad things are going to happen, right? right? Like, I mean, I, we're about to get into the public's reaction, everyone's reaction, and then we can discuss a little bit more about what right, wrong, whatever. At minimum though, you're going to get your stuff stolen from you. Yeah. So. Well, also, you're going onto a land where they don't know people. They are only with their small group. To me, it's very much like going, you know, onto the property of, like, you know, when like Jim Jones, right? Like, mm-hmm. they were ready to attack right away, but they knew that people didn't agree with what they were doing. These people are just living their lives. Right. Like, they're just living their lives. They're just vibing. They don't know anything different. This is their life. It's like if I went to you know, some remote land somewhere else and just walked on. And if you don't speak the same language, like, they don't know what you're there for, you know? Anyways, so in an Instagram post that was posted by John's family after his death, they called John a beloved son, brother, uncle, and best friend. They said he loved God and simply wanted to help those in need. They also asked the public to be more sympathetic and understanding because this blew up in the news really quickly and the public has a lot of mixed opinions. So John's father, Patrick, actually told The Guardian, John is gone because of the Western ideology overpowered by Confucian influence. He blamed evangelicals' extreme Christianity for pushing his child to a not unexpected end, and he referred with particular bitterness to the Great Commission, Jesus' injection that Christians spread to the gospel to all people, end quote. So he really was blaming the church and how they're like, everyone should be Christian. And his dad really, like, I guess at one point in this Guardian article, he said that him and John could no longer talk about religion because John was so extreme on it. And he was like, I understand you. Like, I also believe this, but not to this extreme. And John really was like the extremist. Like, everyone needs to believe this. If you don't believe this, you're going to hell. And it seems like based on this article, Patrick was kind of more like, okay, like not in particular, but okay. So Justin Graves 
who is a friend of John's and also a pastor, made a Facebook say, post saying, John was a good man. He was loving, passionate individual. I was blessed to befriend, and the loss of his light on this earth is devastating, but it cannot be left as a mere tragedy. His death brings to light a multitude of issues with evangelical views and hell-based ethics, end quote. Now, on the flip side of things, so there are a lot of his friends and family that think that it went too far and to think that the church is really to blame for this extremism. Because remember, he had been telling people for years that he wanted to do this. And everyone, you know, his friends and family are probably like, that's a little crazy. But these people, and especially the people that he went to um, that training camp for, were encouraging it. Were saying what he was doing was right, that he was going to be a martyr, that he was going to be all these, you know, the idols that he looks up to. He's going to be them. So on the flip side of things, John Middleton Ramsey, a friend of John's and a fellow evangelical, defended his actions. He said his motivation was love for the Sentinelese people. If you believe in heaven and hell, then what he did was the most loving thing anyone can do. End quote. Mary Ho, the All Nations leader, so the person who put on that whole training camp that said he was one of the best, remember? He, she said, we pray that John's sacrifice efforts will bear eternal fruit in due season. End quote. Um, and many people, so I guess this was a Twitter passage, said many people believe that John is a martyr while other people think he's just an idiot. <laughs> so, and there was one um, tweet that The Guardian posted that was like, he's just an idiot. And the public online, at least, seemed to be in the, you know, realm of defending the Sentinelese. Like, hey, the, this is some random person that came onto your land. And remember, they don't have contact with people. People probably not have not been on the island for decades. So no one on that island goes for a good reason, right? Like, And even if they were, you can't understand what they're saying. He, it's not like he learned the language. He had years to learn the language they were speaking. I don't know if that's a language you can learn, though. So that's actually... Well, you mentioned before the group that had gone before him that survived, the people doing the um, documentary spoke the language of a nearby tribe. tribe. And I think that is more effort than what he put in because he was just like, I'm just going to repeat back to you what you said. I have no idea what you said. Yeah. And I'm just going to hope for the best. And hope so, you LOL. Yeah. Hope you laugh. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to end this thing, this episode, with another quote from The Guardian. It said, Chow's decision to contact the Sentinelese who have made it clear over the years they prefer to be left alone was indefensibly reckless, but it was not a spontaneous act of recklessness by a dim-witted thrill-seeker. It was a premeditated act of recklessness by a fairly intelligent and thoughtful thrill-seeker who spent years preparing, understanding the risks, including to his own life, and believing his purpose on Earth was to bring Christ to the island he considered Satan's last stronghold. I mean, you gotta give it to him for that. He was definitely doing what his heart believed in, and regardless of our opinions on that like yeah it was a bad choice it was irresponsible it was disrespectful but he genuinely thought that he was doing like what he had to do for right and know, I don't think he meant disrespect Earth. by it yeah. but I think the big debate is is this murder or is this just kind of like um a natural consequence I would call it a natural consequence. I would call it a natural consequence. I think that there was enough evidence to suggest that what he was going to do would result in his death. He wrote in his journal that he was very prepared to die and he knew he could die. He felt he was more useful, but he felt if he did die, it was God's will. And that he said, you know, I think he said to his parents, like, I may be, you may think I'm crazy, but this is what God wants me to do. 
So he even knew that there was a very good chance he could die and a very good likelihood. And I do think, you know, to say you love these people so much, but also say they are Satan's last stronghold on the world. Um, I'm going to, you know, put one out there and say they're probably not. There's a lot of people in the world that you could go after. I don't know. Pedophiles. People that kill their kids. I don't know. Right. But it's an interesting one. I thought it was so interesting because it did bring up that debate of like, you know, some people, extreme belief people think that yes, he's a martyr, he's such a hero, and other people are like, he's a fucking idiot. And especially, like, this happened in 2016. No, 2018. So, um, this was very big on the news and on Twitter, and people still talk about it. Like I said, I just saw a TikTok about it. And I do think he he meant well. I don't think he's an evil person at all, but it's a natural consequence, right? Like, and he even said, I might die. Um, one other thing I wanted to bring up was the conspiracy theory that he's still alive. Yeah. Um, I didn't read too much into it, but I saw that there, I think there might be a Reddit form about it. Basically, there's a picture that came out later um, on the island that there's a white person in the picture. So the main theory is that they just took him captive and he became one with the island. Which there, I mean, we don't have his body. So there is no proof that he is dead. We're just all assuming he's dead, but he could have been taken captive in theory. He could have been held captive. We just, I mean, like I said earlier, we don't know enough about the culture or the people to know if that's something they would do. I'm trying to find the picture you were talking about because I'm very interested to see. But I also want to bring up the point that like, yeah, maybe he is still alive. But it kind of goes in line with what you've been saying the past couple episodes too. Like, we don't want to believe that people are gone. We don't want to believe yeah. that bad things happen to people. And well, regardless of his best intentions, like yeah. he went in with a good heart. So it's hard to think that he... And know. it doesn't seem to think that his family thinks that he's alive. You know, mm-hmm. his family basically, at least his dad, and I would assume his family kind of feels the same. Mm-hmm. They think that this death was unneeded and that it was very preventable. But that's what happens with his extreme beliefs. And they, I mean, what his dad even said, like, it wasn't unexpected because they knew he was doing this. Everyone knew he was doing this. Um, so it's an interesting one. And I think it's a little bit different than what I've done before. To research, I've used Wikipedia, joshuaproject.org survivalinternational.org and theguardian.com. Theguardian.com article is so, so, so fantastic. It was so long. I honestly, sometimes, you know, when you find a really good article, you just want to use like the whole thing. You're like, I need to read all of this And that's why a lot of it, I was just using direct quotes because I couldn't word it in my own way that wasn't already better than what I saw. So definitely we will probably post a poll somewhat throughout the week of like, do we think this is murder or do we think it's just a natural consequence of your actions? Um, And like, you know what else though? We're thinking of murder, and I know everyone's clicked off at this point, but me and you can debate this for a second. Sure. Um, everyone thinks about murder and, like, a murder charge or whatever, but, like, the people in the Sentinel, the Sentinel Island, like, they don't they don't oh, know what that is. Yeah, they're like... We don't even know if they have a court of law like we do. I mean, there's only 200 people, so probably not. So murder to them is probably not illegal or bad. So could you imagine trying to capture one of them and being like, like this is illegal. You're coming with me. You're going to jail. They'd be like, what are you talking about? What's jail? I mean, how do we... We don't know how they govern. Right. Isn't that so interesting that there's still people that know, like, are so secluded on a different world and live a whole different life? Like, we don't know what they're doing, and they could have a jail and a government, or they might just be living peacefully because there's only, like, 200 of them. Well, and I think that's the thing, is, like, they're so protective of their culture and their land. As they should be. Everything. As they should be, absolutely. But to me, they have such stringent rules, it seems like. Like, nobody comes in... 
And I wonder if that's because they don't want disruption to their established systems, you know? Well, and this goes so. way back to the 1800s. They were shooting people down. And we don't even know if there's only 200 people. I'm right. just saying that because that's the best estimation. There could be thousands. We don't know. But they want to be left alone. Because if you think about the 1800s, that was very much, you know, we'll attack you and we'll kill you if you trespass on our property. Yeah. So they might not have, you know, they, I doubt they have MacBooks and... Well, maybe they're listening. Maybe. Maybe they're, we're going to see on our Anchor Could, tracker. That would be so Sentinelese funny. But listeners. they probably don't even have that. Yeah. Anchor can't even track them. Who knows? I mean, yeah. we don't know. That's the mystery of it all. And that's probably what's, you know, he wants to convert people to Jesus. I'd want to go there just to see what their life is. Well, and that's the thing is like respect for their culture versus respect mm-hmm. for them being the last stronghold or whatever. But I wonder if anyone has ever left the island. Like... I didn't find you know. No, I know. But what I'm saying is like... But they have his kayaks. <laughs> right. So that like, you know, when you do like 23andMe mm-hmm. or Ancestry or whatever, like I wonder if there's people in the world... Probably. ...that have some of this DNA in them because yeah, someone left. Well, and there's so. other people on other islands. So I could see hundreds of years ago, they went from island to island to island and maybe they're just becoming more and more secluded because they could have been attacked. You know, we don't have a lot of history on that. So yeah. I don't know. That's the end of our... We can talk about this forever. We probably will continue to talk about it, but let us know what you guys think um, on our Instagram at is that too dark? Do you think this, you know, was, I guess this murder or this killing was justified? I personally do. Um, not that John deserved to die, but he knew the risks. So that's, I think, where it's a little bit easier for me to be like, yeah, no, I'm you. Natural consequence, because he knew. Your he choice. wrote multiple times. I know this could lead to my death. He did what he thought was right, and the Sentinelese did what they thought was right. So... Follow us on Instagram at is that too dark. Make sure you tell a friend and tune in next. Tune time. in next time. Um, and remember, if you you know come on to my island, I will steal your kayak and your batteries, and I will strip you naked. Yeah. Bye. Bye.